Hello and welcome to The Insurgents, episode 17. And it's Rob Rousseau here. Hey, and it's Jordan Yule. Hey. Um, well, I mean, a lot of stuff. I don't know about you, Jordan, but I am really feeling uh, pretty excited today, pretty happy now that, that Bernie Sanders has suspended his campaign. Um, mm-hmm. The Bernie bros, they've been owned. Um, everything's mm-hmm. kind of go- going back to normal. We can finally, we finally, there's not anyone running in the Democratic primary that's you know, trying to reorient the way politics in the U.S. works or like is pushing for like a really kind of radical approach to climate action or, or health justice or housing justice or debt forgiveness. I mean, I mm-hmm. thank God that that's not going on anymore because I'm really, I had enough of that Bernie guy, so I'm feeling pretty good now. Yeah, I'm over the moon right now. It's like, uh, yeah. I was sending out an email yesterday to all my friends, like, haha, Bernie's gone. Let's hop on Zoom and um, four yeah. o'clock and we'll, t- we'll toast to, to Bernie dropping. Yeah, out. I got that invite. I was excited to do that. And then it got, got exposed. I had, I had to delete it for just don't ask why. Um, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, I just think like going into this, we're just, oh, we're in such a good position. We've got Biden who is like just yep. so inspiring. Electable. Um, yeah, extremely electable. And, you know, just I, not really. Uh, connected anything he's like all there mentally but just i just like to point yep. that out about people in general it's not a him thing definitely um, yeah and very sharp uh, yeah and just like uh i think the f rating from sunrise movement is what i'm really most excited about um i am yeah if you can't t- i mean clearly i'm a guy who kind of wears his heart on his sleeve you could probably tell how fucking pumped i am about this guy right now um so yeah sorry to, i just I'll, I'll work on containing my enthusiasm yeah yeah. And and hey, I saw that he's already I don't even think he has to do this, but he's already making like overtures to the the left, bring in all these these young people that were mm-hmm. very excited about Bernie Sanders and he so what what I think he's offering is to lower the Medicare age to 60 instead so of 65. Cool. Fuck yeah. Which is even better than what Bernie was saying when you think about it. Now, so if you're mm-hmm. if you're 30 and you have like lupus, that's just a, a brief little three decades you've got to wait now to start getting that looked at and it's five years sooner i think that's a yeah yeah that's five years sooner um so what's what's not to be excited about right now i i right. know i'm i'm just really i'm really happy about everything that's gone on and i'm right. just just thrilled i mean uh, i also I don't leave this out because this is also pretty exciting um means tested um debt forgiveness for student loans which doesn't yeah. include uh, mm-hmm. graduate loans, which are, um, you know, a huge portion of student loan debt. And, you know, as me, someone who just finished his master's degree in, in public administration so I could be a better participant in the nonprofit and public sectors, um, to see myself not included uh, in that is fucking amazing, man. I am yeah, over the moon. That. Yeah, it's pretty good. Pretty good right now. Yeah, overall, uh, it's just a good feeling. Good vibes over here in Insurgents HQ, mm-hmm. and um, I- I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, Biden you know, debate Trump. I think that's going to go really well mm-hmm. for for Joe Biden. Uh, Trump is for sure just has no chance, and uh, it's just really exciting. And I'm, I'm very, I'm just, I'm just really thrilled about what's happening. And that's enough. Let's just start the show. Let's-
boy. Oh boy, Jordan. What, what's what's happening? What's going on here? This is ridiculous. Like this. I know, man. We've been doing the show. It's episode 17 now. <laughs> and what I feel world. like. I feel like the, the world that we're talking about now is just like a complete 180 from what we started off doing this oh, show I know, I know. as just a couple weeks ago. I still don't really know what has happened and uh, feels pretty bad. I feel I feel uh, sad and deflated. <laughs> and there's also a pandemic going on and, a, and an economic collapse also. So really just not a lot of good stuff going on in the, the old U.S. of A. at the moment. Right. Yeah, I was telling you before we hit record on this, <laughs> in February, uh was out in Nevada knocking doors. It was just a week that I will remember forever. You know, life, like, life-changing experience. It was just so cool to be part of that amazing movement, just to see people's faces light up when we told them we were there volunteering with the Sanders campaign, seeing how excited they got, got him, or he got them. Uh, just working class people all over Las Vegas and the outskirts, just all in. Uh, and the result that came about it, and that, that came about from all that work, uh, that people well before I got there, we got there, had been putting in for like a year, a year and a half. That was amazing. To come home. Yeah. And then like a week later, global <laughs> pandemic and like a turbo depression. What the fuck, man? Yeah. Insane. And the rise I, I of Joe Biden. Who, who, yeah. The rise of Joe Biden also, who after Nevada looked like he was pretty much finished, his campaign was finished. Yep. He had no, he had no like campaign network <laughs> at all in any of these Super Tuesday states. It looked like he was just about to get kind of wiped out, and it was headed to, uh, headed for a, a, a good things. So, like we, the the thing we were really concerned about starting the show was like, oh, are they going to be able to deny Bernie the nomination? Uh, the, right. the the are they going to be able to uh, keep him at just a plurality before the Democratic convention, or are they going to be able to, or is he going to be able to to lock it up before then? And I admit, I was I I allowed myself to believe that 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 this was happening, uh, and I think that came through in a lot of the interviews we were doing and the talks we were doing. And it's just been like uh, this turnaround has been really really depressing. Yeah, it's been pretty pretty shitty, pretty bad. I don't want to describe pretty, it, man. <laughs> pretty bad stuff. But I think you know I'm really happy to talk to our guests uh, today, Megan Day and uh, Micah Utrecht. Uh, from Jacobin, who just wrote this book, Bigger Than Bernie, How We Go From the Sanders Campaign to Democratic Socialism. I think if you're someone that's been following this campaign that's feeling also deflated and disappointed, uh, they've got a lot of interesting stuff to say uh, in this interview. Uh, it's a really great book that I think people should check out if, they, if they're if they interested in, in kind of taking the energy of this movement and translating that into you know continuing to fight for political change. And I do actually feel a little bit better from talking to the two of them. Uh, they both had a really positive outlook on this, and uh, it was a really great great talk with with uh, Megan and Micah. Yeah, it was fantastic. I mean, it, I I just I adore both of them and their work. Uh, I really enjoy reading their stuff. It's that it was really cool to talk to them. Most of the conversation, I kind of just try to absorb it all like a sponge because I just enjoy uh, what they have to say, and I think uh, the listeners will as well because they're both super smart um, and have been thinking about this critically for a while. Uh, and are really great people to listen to and take and what they have to say take to heart in this moment because there is a lot of questions about what's next, and a lot of competing factions are kind of pulling for whatever energy you have left in the midst of all this global chaos. Uh, they really cut through all that noise and deliver a clear, concise uh, message. So check it out. 
Yeah, definitely. It's it's a really great conversation. And I think one thing before one thing we didn't touch on um that I think it's important to kind of just at least mention now that as frustrating as as this is that Bernie suspended his campaign like I'm not sure under normal circumstances that that's what the plan would have been. I think I think my impression is that they wanted to take this all the way to the convention and continue campaigning and continue uh you know illustrating the, the vast ideological gulf between him and Joe Biden and trying to kind of make a comeback in these coming states. But it seems like they were put in this position where the Democratic Party was not doing enough to stop these primaries from taking place during a fucking terrifying health crisis. And it seems like Bernie is just making the decision uh, as best they could to like literally protect people uh, because he was being put in a position where he was telling people to go and vote in this like dangerous situation. And then as soon as he did, uh, as soon as he did suspend his campaign, all of a sudden the Democratic Party now is way more amenable to, uh, you know, uh, alternate ways of of people voting in this primary. So it seems like this really cynical reading of this is that they were almost like holding a gun on voters and being forcing Bernie into make taking this decision uh, before more people got hurt. Like, did you get that impression, too? Or is that just me being paranoid? I don't know. You don't strike me as a paranoid guy. So I, I don't know. Yeah, I'm very, very, have it all together. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't think you're being paranoid. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a, it's a shitty situation, yeah. uh, especially for people that really had put a lot of hope into this. I've talked about the reasons that I, as a non-American, was, was invested in this. Basically because, you know, in terms of, like, uh, climate policy, uh, if we want to have a better future, a more sustainable future... And try to mitigate some of the effects of the climate crisis. We need America to be a leader on that front, and not just you know a tepid leader, but someone who's going to a country that's going to take bold positions uh, and really try to move that conversation forward. Also, if you view you know like global capitalism as being sort of an uh, an impediment to to progress, and uh, America is kind of the the center of that, the the heart of it, and that's why the, the Bernie campaign was exciting because it seems like they were kind of mounting a legitimate challenge to that for the first time. Uh, in like a generation. Another reason that, as I mentioned before, one of the reasons that I've I've been following this and excited about it was because I would like for there to be a similar social movement here in Canada or a similarly like transformative political figure because we're kind of really in the grips of neoliberalism as well. Mm. And I was hoping that a, a Bernie success could maybe embolden some people in Canada to kind of just kind of start going down that road. Um, but overall, like whether I think for everyone, it's just, it's depressing and deflating that it's turned out like this, especially with the pandemic on top of everything, uh, that's made it even harder for Bernie to try and, uh, try and succeed with all the odds against him. Anyway, so that's why it was been depressing for me, even though I'm not kind of like directly materially, um, affected by some of this stuff. Obviously, America has a lot of influence over how the rest of the world operates. I was hoping that Bernie Sanders was going to have to was going to be able to sort of uh, mount a really a real challenge to that. It really felt like it was going to happen, but I guess the struggle continues. Um, I think there's that old saying about socialism: there, where there's no final victory or there's no final defeat, and this is one of those situations as well. So before they come on, I just want to remind everyone, please, to subscribe over at theinsurgents.substack.com. You can make a monthly contribution there, uh, which is $5 per month or $55 annually to have access to future bonus content and have access to our Discord server. Um, number of people have already subscribed and are part of the Discord community already, which is really kind of exciting and cool. And there's a lot of uh, fun stuff going on in there. So if you want to subscribe to the show... 
Uh, that's where you do it, the insurgents.substack.com. One of the things that came up in this conversation, one of the main uh, obstacles that I think many people have noticed um, to having a kind of like progressive movement in the U.S. is the fact that there are these like uh, massive media institutions that are completely aligned against those goals. So, uh, you know, uh, supporting independent media is part of uh, fighting back against that, uh, whether that's here or, you know, Jacobin Magazine, like uh, like Megan and Micah. Mm-hmm. Or uh, other podcasts or other other um, independent progressive media outlets. I mean, I think continuing to grow that is is one cog in how we're going to start making a dent um, in, in terms of the United States and elsewhere and in, in these broad progressive movements. Do you have anything else you want to plug? If you want to leave us a voicemail, you can't. We've, like, we've got so many. We're now backed up into a couple episodes that we, we need to just do like a, a whole opening for voicemails. But 202. Yeah. Five seven zero four six three nine is the number. Uh, give us a call. Leave us a voicemail. I, they go to my email, and they're hilarious to listen to. So yeah, it didn't uh, really feel like the the moment to do some more wacky, no, some wacky no, no, voicemails. Not, the, not this episode. It's tough in general because I mean, all things considered, it's you know, it's a delicate balance. But we're trying to strike it. But this episode definitely did not feel like the, the goofy no. <laughs> voicemail intro episode. No, no. Um, but please continue leaving us voicemails, even ones that are sincere or, or you know, uh, that are not, you know, wacky and, and messing with us. And please yeah, just know, no Ken Klippenstein references, please. That's all. Yeah, I no ask. Ken. And also make sure you uh, mention both of us. Uh, we had an, you know, first wave of yeah, voicemails. Wanna... They forgot Rob. But yeah. then, you know what? We haven't played it yet, but there's an episode, there's a voicemail in there where I'm not mentioned at I don't know if I like that. So uh, <laughs> I sent a, I a, a double agent to, uh, to do a. I a suspected one. you had uh, something to do with yeah. that because well, it, was, anyway. uh, it came immediately after we talked about it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, we're going to play more of those in the future, but please continue to leave us voicemails. Uh, let's get to the interview with Megan and Micah because we talked for quite a while, uh, but I think you're really going to enjoy it. Um, I, I definitely got a lot out of speaking with them, and, and uh, I'm excited about what they're going to be doing in the future. And uh, it was a really great talk. I hope you enjoy it. So Megan and Micah are going to be joining the show right after this. guys have a question can you just maybe mention who you want to answer because we did one of these the other day when they did not do that and it ended up being very difficult actually we were just yeah, hoping yeah. it becomes some, some kind of a free-for-all type situation just, uh, whoever <laughs> just a brawl asserts the most dominance is the yeah. one that gets to <laughs> the libertarian podcast yeah you should do that but you should liter- literally only address your questions to me and prevent micah from speaking the entire time <laughs> <laughs> yeah well as discussed previously in the dms and that's what i was planning on doing so <laughs> yes part of your machiavellian plan to freeze micah out of all the uh the, <laughs> the book promotions absolutely okay well that's the kind of that's the kind of political strategy that we're having you on to, to talk about today um but um megan day and micah utrecht welcome to the show thank you so much for coming on uh the show today yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Did I pronounce your name properly, Micah? As, as no, I was you, saying you, it, I was like, I should have asked about this ahead of time. And now, valiant effort. Yeah, you tricked. You tricked. Okay, good. I guess I was close. But uh, we're we're really excited to be speaking with both of you today. Obviously, it's not the uh, 
ideal uh, moment, and it's everyone's kind of reeling a little bit today, I think. But um, there's there's no one I'd rather talk about this current moment than you two. Um, partially because of your book that you just put out, uh, "Bigger Than Bernie: How We Go from the Sanders Campaign to Democratic Socialism." This is a this is what we need to know now. This is like the, the lesson that everyone needs to learn right now. So um, looking forward to to breaking that stuff down with you. Um, Verso actually sent me a copy of the book. I was very happy. And then it's because there's this pandemic. I've not been able to have one moment to even look at it because I'm playing action figures with my son like eight hours a day now. So it's it's cutting into my time to uh, to my reading time. We'll tell you what's in it. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, that's a great place to start. Um, yesterday, Bernie officially suspended his campaign. Uh, it's been a really stark and and sudden shift from just a few weeks ago bernie was kind of in the the front runner in this race it looked like everything was kind of falling into place and then it ended up of course being this dramatic shift uh over the course of the last couple of weeks and now after like the last year of of campaigning and and uh, a lot of people me included and i think you too and jordan as well pointing out all the ways that it would be a total disaster for joe biden to be the nominee for the democratic party uh that seems to be what's shaping up to be the result so how are you two feeling right now um considering all all, all this stuff <laughs> well I, I can start i feel bad uh because i wanted bernie sanders to be the president of the united states of america and if he's not going to be the nominee then he's not going to be the president so I feel bad, but I also, this was what, this was the most likely outcome. So it's not like I hadn't envisioned this moment. I didn't envision it happening in precisely the way it did. I mean, I think that what the consolidation around Joe Biden and the way that that went down precisely is actually relatively unprecedented. We haven't seen anything like that happen yeah. because we haven't seen a crowded field where um, there is one candidate who must be stopped at all costs and what that what kind of dynamic that would produce among all of the other candidates, the kind of like teaming up. I mean, seriously, Pete Buttigieg did really well in the first states and Joe Biden didn't. So Joe Pete Buttigieg dropping out and supporting or endorsing Biden, presumably in exchange for some kind of cabinet position or whatever. This is not something that uh, has happened before. It, it's a bit odd and it has to do with the dynamics of the race and the fact that there was a very big never Bernie stop Bernie coalition um, that was able to exert itself in the final hour and arrange things behind the scenes to get its way. So I didn't see that coming. And I also didn't see the pandemic coming, obviously. None of yes. us... Um, None of us thought that would happen. And the fact that the campaigning itself needed to be suspended um, because of the new social reality that we're living in. And so it has created just six weeks of pure weirdness. And uh, as many times as I played over this moment in my head and prepared myself mentally and emotionally for it, it's very it feels very different from yes. what I had imagined. Yeah, that's my that's my initial set of reactions. Yeah, I mean, I'm bummed out like everybody else is, but I also find it hard to be too upset. And maybe I'm just telling myself this to make myself feel better, but what an insane situation we have we found ourselves in at, you know, like after Nevada, right? Like what who ever could have envisioned Five years ago, let's just rewind to five years ago to where we were politically 
with like no reborn socialist movement in the United States with uh, basically Bernie being the only left elected official in Congress uh, with no, you know, uh, rebirth of union and labor militancy in the country. I mean, all of these things have happened uh, not directly as a result of, of Bernie's campaign, but have sort of sprouted out of it. And I never would have even been able to guess that somebody like Bernie could win the first three primaries. I mean, how insane we went from like zero to a hundred in incredibly rapid fashion. So um, I'm trying to, you know, take the longer view here and realize that the fact that we traveled from where we were in 2015, to where we are now uh, is really astonishing uh, and is something that we, I mean, we should mourn, you know, the fact that Bernie Sanders is uh, likely not going to be uh, president of the United States unless he gets some, like, unless Peter Thiel, like, lets him in on his, you know, stash of uh, teenage blood to <laughs> infuse it himself or whatever. Uh, you know, Bernie's likely going to be uh, too old to be running for president again. But, like, the rest of us are in an incredible uh, position to advance a left-wing politics uh once we are all able to leave our houses whenever that is um so i don't want to sugarcoat it too much i mean obviously it is a huge blow and i do have real doubts about biden being able to defeat trump uh but it's overall we're we're not in the worst of shape i think that it's interesting that you know mike and i have um we have the same analysis of the situation and i think that both of us would will eventually arrive at the same point whenever we respond to what's happening right now, which is like, we're way better off than we were before. And also it's a crushing blow. You know, we can accommodate both of those realities, but it's interesting that my first, my first instinct is this is terrible. And Micah's is we're so much better off than we were before because that's, uh, it makes a lot of sense. Micah was a socialist before Bernie Sanders was around or Bernie Sanders was running for president. And I wasn't. Right. So for Micah, he knows what it was like being a socialist before Bernie Sanders was running for president, how incredibly marginalized this movement was. And I, on the other hand, I have never this is my first full day being a self-identified, organized socialist without the without the possibility that Bernie Sanders could be the president of the United States. I think that changes the tenor of our responses a little bit. I mean, Micah, you must be feeling um, I've talked to you about this many times before, but I'm sure that, you know, for you, the the resonance of, of the way that Bernie Sanders, I can like articulate the way that Bernie Sanders has changed the political landscape for the socialist movement and for the left in general and for the working class. But I think that there's a different, a different sort of emotional response that you must be having since you were a socialist before all of this. Yeah, I mean, I used to go to protests with like a dozen people and we would be just elated that there were a dozen people there because that was like... <laughs> half a dozen more than were there you know two weeks before so um for me it's 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 crushing etc cetera, etc cetera. you know you know that but like we've seen a path to uh to to mass politics for the left that wasn't here before and um i'm really excited that we are on that path i do not want us to go back to that path and when people get too down about everything i worry that they'll want to actually slide back into those old ways of doing politics in which the left and the socialist left in particular uh was like tiny and uh didn't matter it had no impact on society whatsoever uh i I don't want to go back to that 
so yeah we were we're now at uh uh, we've turned the page we're in a new chapter of of this you know the the 21st century century socialist world and um you know i tried to for me personally i tried to keep clear-eyed throughout the entire election I, i was optimistic i believed in sanders did all the things you needed to do to be a good supporter it made the bernie journey to nevada um you know all of these things and still it's i mean it's disappointing but i try to remind myself i think i can't i think micah you made the comparison to kind of like you know a, a broad view and it's just like rolling a big stone up a hill like sanders took it really really far but you know it's on us to continue it which is the what something you both have been thinking about uh and 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 you have in your book so i see a lot of chatter today on on twitter like join dsa that's the one thing you need to do is that the one thing you need to do first? Like, what what do you think uh, people should really take to heart right now and consider? Like, I mean, what are like one or two things? Well, I think that people um, should consider joining DSA uh, because DSA is a large democratic. It is a democratic socialist organization in the sense that it, it's its central motivating political ideology is democratic socialism, and also it is a socialist organization that is run democratically, which is extremely important. It means its members decide what happens next. And what we need right now coming out of the Bernie Sanders campaign is for some of the most impassioned and clear-eyed supporters to all be able to decide what happens next somewhere. And there's already a skeletal structure for that in DSA. So honestly, I think DSA is wonderful. I've been very active for three and a half years. But let's say that you, for whatever reason, don't think that DSA is wonderful. You've had an unpleasant, uh, you had got an unpleasant impression of it from somewhere along the line. I still think that it's the best place to go just on the basis that it is a large and dynamic and democratic organization that embodies the highest idea of the Bernie Sanders campaign. And if you don't like something about it, you can be a part of agitating to make it different. Um, I know that people don't like to hear that because they think that it seems like a cliche or something, but it's a cliche because it's true, honestly. Like you can join DSA and you can, don't third party this democratic organization that you could join at literally any point and and influence at literally any point, right? so yes, I think people should join DSA. I think people should spend, uh, if you know, if I, if the audience for this podcast is um, is who I think it might be, then then the, probably a lot of you guys are on Twitter, right? So you've probably seen people grumbling yeah. about occasionally, yeah, sure. But you've probably seen people grum- grumbling about about this or that uh, thing is is wrong with DSA. Look, it doesn't it doesn't matter. Like this, that is that's some like baby brain stuff. You need to level up and. <laughs> <laughs> and participate in earnest in building a socialist movement in the United States. And that means that you're going to have to be around people that you find irritating. And it's funny because all of us on the left are capable of making allowances for certain types of people that we find irritating. All of us can articulate, yeah, of course, I'm going to have to work with someone different than me. But usually you have a little pet peeve about a certain type of person and you're like, I draw the line there. I'm not going to be an organization with a person who annoys me in that particular way. Right. Um I think that people need to just like give it a shot at the very least, or at least sit down and consider whether or not they really actually think of themselves as a consumer of politics or a political actor. And if you think of yourself as a political actor, I really think that you should consider going and getting involved in your local DSA chapter. And if there isn't one, I think that you should consider starting one. Right. Um, But I don't think that's the only thing that you can do. I just wanted to add, and Micah can elaborate on this, that, You should organize your workplace in general. You should consider organizing your workplace. And 
you, in particular, if you are experiencing some difficulties in your workplace due to uh, the pandemic, which a lot of people are, then this is a really good opportunity for you to take advantage of the uh, unusual situation and talk to your coworkers about things that you want to change. And whether that, whether you're an essential frontline worker who's not being given pro proper protection, or you just have, you know, an, a stay-at-home job and some of the problems in your workplace are starting to come to the fore. I think that's another thing that you can do. And incidentally, a really good resource for you if you want to do that is actually DSA, because DSA does do a lot of support work for, for people organizing their workplaces. Yeah, and I was that's where I was going to go uh, with uh, building on what you said. I mean, we encourage people to join DSA not because joining a socialist organization, getting a bunch of people who call themselves socialist is the solely important thing in the world, but because in DSA, uh, that is is an organization that is participating in all of the most important fights in our society right now. I mean, every part of the us part of the not me us that uh, Bernie ran for president under in 2020 is being addressed by DSA. I mean, we have DSA members who are uh, organizing their workplaces, as, as Megan just mentioned, or are uh, helping other people organize their workplaces. We have members who are deeply involved in the fight for a green new deal and who are fighting alongside folks like the sunrise movement we have uh, members of dsa who are running for office and winning everywhere from you know aoc and rashida Tlaib in the house who are both members of dsa to you know we profile the city where i live chicago where we have half a dozen city council members who are dsa members uh, who were elected last year uh, and, you know, all up and down from city council to the state level up to up to the house. I mean, all of the fights that are that are worth having uh, in society right now uh, and that, that are taking advantage of the openings that Bernie Sanders has shown us, uh, has presented to us through his campaign. Uh, those are all openings that uh, DSA is trying to take advantage of. Uh, and so uh, we think that it's the best place to uh, get involved in the fight and take that not me us of Bernie's campaign seriously. Yeah, and I mean, I guess I imagine for a lot of people, this Bernie Sanders campaign was kind of their first exposure to political organizing and, and political campaigning and becoming a political actor, like you were saying, Megan. And I think that's the main thing that people are going to need to take away from this moment is that that energy can't just be stagnant and it needs to be, um, you know, redirected into your community and into these these things that can take place outside of electoral politics. Uh, because if anything, this Bernie Sanders campaign was certainly a lesson in, you know, how difficult it is to actually, you know, accomplish uh, something in terms of this big, big kind of left wing movement in electoral politics in the United States. So I think it like whether DSA or or, or other similar kind of organizations could be a good way for people that are just kind of getting used to this kind of stuff to um, take that energy and redirect it into a, into a positive space. That wasn't really a question. That was more yeah. just a statement. I was yeah, making. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think that's. I think that's exactly right. I mean, the book. The book that we have written is an attempt to outline the broad. The broad gives give the sort of broad outlines of what I of what we think people should do next. Um, and we wrote this not knowing what the outcome of the election would be. We tried to write it in such a way that it would be relevant even if bernie sanders happened to win the nomination and even win the presidency the sort of like set of principles that guide our thinking about what the socialist movement ought to do and really it kind of boils down to a couple of 
basic principles. Uh, one is that the main the main institutional forms that the left and the working class historically have found to assert their will in a capitalist society have been the party and the union. So we tried to talk, to explore what are some of the main guiding principles for how socialists should relate to electoral politics and then how socialists should relate to labor movement and rebuilding the labor movement, making, making it more democratic and more militant. Um, and so the, the first one, we tried to give an outline of what we think are some of the main principles for what distinguishes a a campaign worth getting involved in for socialists versus one that um, that you maybe is not worth your time. Um, a lot of socialist organizations have criteria already, and their criteria are: Are you a member of my party and not the Democratic Party, or not? Right, and it's very sort of sim simplistic. It's understandable. I mean, the Democratic Party is a party of capital. It has demonstrated itself over and over again to be arranged against and entirely hostile to our project. And it's very difficult to maneuver around the key players in the Democratic Party. Unfortunately, you have to maneuver around them whether or not you're in the party with them or not, because they are one of they are one of the two major parties that have a complete gridlock over American politics. So it's not like you escape the Democratic Party establishment the moment that you build a third party. Um, and, you know, es escape from, you know, the actual institution of the Democratic Party. There's, the parties are like semi-state institutions in the United States. So, so we, um, you know, lay out a, a sort of theory for how to proceed. The goal is to build an independent workers party. That is the goal in general, because that's one of the things that historically socialists have come to understand through experience is necessary to push forward a working class agenda. Uh, but you can't just build it and they will come. So people who right now are sort of saying, aha, Bernie Sanders proves that, you know, if you run as a socialist on the Democratic Party ballot line, then you are going to run into a failure. So we should do this other thing. We should have an independent party immediately. The truth of the matter is that recent history has also demonstrated that if you build a third party, but you haven't built a mass base for your third party, then that has also resulted over and over again, repeatedly in failure. So nobody here has the benefit of experience on their side. Nobody can say my thing works and your thing doesn't work. The truth is that we just know that we need to have a party, not just in name only, a party in function. And the function of a working class party has to be to raise the expectations of the working class, to uh, unite working class people uh, with each other against the people that they're most different from, which is the capitalist class, and to build working class movements outside of electoral politics itself. And we are, I guess, we're speculating that it's possible to uh, run on the Democratic Party ballot line and take advantage of the of their reach in order to raise expectations, unite working class people, and build movements on our way to an independent uh, political expression. So all of that is, is detailed in the book. And Mike can talk a lot more about the labor stuff. Yeah, we um, have a, a bunch in here. I mean, the two main tracks that organizing in recent years have gone on in organizing since Bernie are the electoral track and the kind of social movement track, more generally speaking. And we have some profiles. I mean, we have the kind of laying out of what good socialist electoral co campaigns should look like in part based on what we've seen 
from Bernie. Uh, and then we also profile some of the successes uh, that the DSA has had in running exactly those kind of campaigns uh, in New York, in Chicago, and in the East Bay of California. And uh, then we go into more of the movement stuff, you know, the uh, specific focus on the labor movement, given how important the labor movement is to uh, to winning policies that are benefit the many and not the few. Um, and uh, we also have a, a whole section on on why it's important to go toe to toe with the Democratic Party uh, and why the Democratic Party are not your friends, as I think many people have learned uh, yes. uh, from the uh, our, our own Bernie Sanders' recent experience trying to engage with this party. Um, so we're trying to cover the whole spread of uh, of, of the kind of organizing that that, that has been inspired by bernie's campaign and then the kind that we should uh, do more of going forward i'll add one tiny thing to that which is mike is right the point it's it's very important for us to demonstrate to as many people as possible that the democratic party is not a friend of the working class that we need a separate uh independent workers party a socialist party however the when people when people first understand that they initially think that means that we have to get as far away from and as independent from the democratic party as possible but i don't know you know i mean recent history has kind of indicated the best way to expose the uh machinations of the democratic party the anti-worker nature of the democratic party establishment has been to run in democratic party primaries as a pro working class so socialist insurgent or progressive insurgent. So that's, uh, you know, I mean, it's somewhat controversial according to sort of socialist, uh, you know, socialist, uh, I, I don't, I, I feel like I'm, the word, the word on the tip of my tongue is kind of mean, like catechism, you know, but truly, I mean, there has been a kind of ossified catechism in the socialist movement around uh, staying away from the Democratic Party, keeping the Democratic Party at arm's length in order to demonstrate your extreme antipathy to the Democratic Party establishment, when on the contrary, if demonstrating that antipathy is your goal, then possibly getting as close to them as possible in order to highlight or heighten the contradictions might actually be the more appropriate strategy. I think Bernie Sanders probably is the best example that we've we've seen of that. Yeah, yeah definitely. Gonna, I think I was... the, the the difficult thing is that what he did expose also is that there's a there's still a large section of the sort of democratic electorate that is really beholden that just takes their cues from the party leadership. Uh, which gets filtered through the media apparatus, which is very, very kind of uh, connected with the DNC and the Democratic Party establishment. Um, so I think that's been sort of the the eye-opening and frustrating thing for people that that I think wanted to really believe that this time uh, Bernie could kind of make a dent uh, in the in the kind of power and influence these people have. But do you see a solution to that? Because that's I think that's to me that's looks to like one of the main obstacles. Um, to kind of supplanting that Democratic Party leadership is just that they've they've got so much influence through the media that they can kind of uh, manufacture consent uh, away from where you want to go and and kind of have people uh, their voters take their cues from from their from the leadership and and shut down any kind of insurgency that you're that you're talking about. Yeah, that's a hundred percent true. But uh, again, to take the longer view, I mean, before Bernie before he ran in the democratic primary twice people had this general sense that the democratic party was 
not really fighting for them, at least in the in the way that, that it could and should be. But they didn't really know what to do about that, and, and it didn't feel like there was any viable alternative. And then through his two campaigns, Bernie has really displayed the utter bankruptcy and and just I mean disgusting uh, link to which the Democratic establishment and its allies in mainstream media will move heaven and earth to smash a guy who's just trying to give you some free health care and some uh, uh, you know some free public college and get rid of your student debt like Bernie Sanders was not proposing the dictatorship of the proletariat he was proposing things that literally every other wealthy country on earth already has and for millions of people, they got to see first somebody proposing that on a national stage and then the Democratic Party establishment doing everything it could to destroy that. So uh, that establishment still, I mean, they've, they've, they've come out on top in this, uh, in, in this battle here. Um, but millions and millions of people, especially young people, especially young people who these two elections were their, either their first or second engagement in, in politics, right? They got to see the democratic party, uh, do all of this. Uh, and they're like, this, this is what the democratic party is about. Like, like smashing a, a guy who's trying to get us some really uh, basic stuff that the wealthiest country on earth should be able to provide for its citizens. Um, so I think that that, and, and of course, like there's, it goes beyond Bernie. I mean, you remember the quote from just a couple months ago of AOC in New York magazine, where she was saying, I think the reporter asked her something about Joe Biden. And she kind of laughed and stopped him and was like, well, you know, if, if I were in any other country, Joe Biden and I would not be in the same yeah. party, which is a very just basic, like factual yeah. <laughs> statement. Uh, but to hear AOC, who is an elected Democrat saying this uh, on a national stage is like really eye opening to people because in the US, we don't think about the fact that our country is pretty weird because we are stuck with this democratic party and we don't actually have a working class party or a, or a social democratic party or whatever so um all of that is, has happened all of that kind of antipathy and antagonism with the democratic party has happened through bernie running as a democrat he managed to maintain a level of independence from the democratic party establishment and that is something that is really essential going forward and we talk in the book about how to do that and what role a group like dsa can play in maintaining that independence from the party but the, the role, I guess we could, the, the pithy way to say it would be the, the, the way through, the way past the Democratic Party is through the Democratic Party. Uh, and Bernie showed us how running an independent campaign with, on the Democratic Party ballot line really exposes the Democrats, the corporate Democrats, the establishment Democrats uh, for the anti-working class, uh, anti-good things <laughs> party that they are. Yeah, the I, I and I wanted to clarify the the position that we're putting forward in the book is distinct from the realignment position. So realignment refers to the effort to take over the Democratic Party. It's just sort of um, you hear this sometimes you hear it being articulated by AOC, sometimes you hear it being articulated by Bernie Sanders. It's unclear to what extent they actually believe this in their hearts or this is just what they think of as good optics um, to make sure to sort of counter the accusation that 
that they're interlopers. Um, maybe Bernie Sanders and AOC are different from each other. It's hard to say. But in any case, we are articulating a different viewpoint than that. We're not actually saying that the Democratic Party is going to fall into the hands of workers and become the independent electoral expression that we have always dreamed and, and dreamed of and hoped for. Uh, in, instead, we just believe that some kind of break has to happen with the Democratic Party, but it has to be successful because there have been there's a long history of premature breaks from the Democratic Party, just as there is a long history of uh, extremely failed attempts to realign the Democratic Party. The realignment is more or less impossible. I mean, we can't we can't say for certain that anything is impossible, but we know that the capitalist class has a very cozy situation. It has found itself in the best possible situation in the United States. Uh, it has two major parties that are both beholden to it. They, they're uh, to, to, to slightly different degrees, but I would say more different in kind, actually, rather than degree. Uh, the Democratic Party has a huge a chunk of the capitalist class on its side. We're talking about you know the oil and gas industry, the defense industry, uh, and depending on the place that you're in, uh, you know various other industries, real estate, finance, et cetera. And then the Democratic Party also grabs some real estate and finance depending on the, in the big blue cities, definitely, in the blue states. But it also has, you know, like healthcare and education and the tech industry and Hollywood. So those are, the capitalist class is split between the two parties. And then so is the working class. The working class that votes at all, which is not, you know, it's not an overwhelming majority of the working class, uh, is split roughly evenly between the Republican and the Democratic Party on the basis of, um, cultural lines, uh, geographical lines, racial lines, uh, lines of national origin, uh, gender, just a sort of general approach or style to politics, a sense of, sense of sort of cultural identity. Um, and that is such a great situation for the capitalist class in the United States to be in. Why on earth would they ever abdicate that? They're not going to vacate the Democratic Party willingly because they're scared of us and because we we're they want to go have their own you know small party that could be crushed by the, one of the two major parties. I mean, this is just a somewhat implausible scenario, I think. Uh, and 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 yet at the same time, it's also the case that if we were to just erect a party right now, just say like here it is, it's you know if people don't join it if people have not uh if people have not uh had the their appetite whetted enough yet to exit the democratic party in numbers large enough to actually produce an institution that wouldn't automatically be crushed by both the republicans and the democrats in the next round of elections i mean i just don't think that that's going to happen either so we have to find another way forward and i think that we should just learn from our successes sometimes you know, sometimes you sit around and you plan things and you draw up blueprints and plans and you see how things work through trial and error. Other times history simply unfolds and you watch it and you learn from it. And I think that the latter is the Bernie Sanders situation. We just saw that a lot of people learned, millions and millions of people actually. Bernie Sanders' hardcore supporters are not huge fans of the Democratic Party establishment right now. Millions of people are learning lessons about how politics actually works and the relationship between the capitalist class and the political class. And it's uh, through what Bernie Sanders did. So I think that we should try to replicate that. Jordan, do you have anything? So maybe, yeah, sorry, I, was try I got stuck trying to unmute myself. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, people are, are learning these lessons. I would imagine uh, many of them are demoralized they're they're downtrodden they're upset by the result um and maybe even disillusioned by 
this electoral system. So I've seen a, a fierce debate that I do not want to partake in on Twitter because I just can't stand to get in the middle of that kind of stuff. But like, you know, there's there's questions about the, the, the merit of electoralism in general from a leftist perspective. I mean, what would you tell people uh, to What's your elevator pitch to convince people to keep going, to keep up this fight? Yeah, Micah, do you want to take this one? Yeah, I mean, there's a difference between, I guess, uh, electoralism and participating in elections as part of a broader strategy for bringing about social change. I mean, it is true, as we write in the book, that elections are not going to deliver us from evil. Uh, we know the barriers. We just saw the barriers toward uh, to f- effective uh, electoral action. We don't need to go over all of those things. And it is true that we need to uh, engage in politics in other ways and stuff we already mentioned and fights, you know, on the job and for a Green New Deal and for affordable housing, sort of social movement, street level stuff. Um, but what was so amazing about the Bernie campaign was that he was using his campaign to bolster exactly that kind of politics. He was using his campaign infrastructure to get people who supported him to turn out to picket lines when workers were going on strike. He was sending people to immigrant rights protests. He was saying any time he had a microphone that the world was not going to change just by you electing Bernie Sanders to the presidency. He, he His vision of politics was one that was far more expansive and that included the whole range of kind of grassroots, uh, uh, extra parliamentary, you know, outside of the halls of, uh, of, of elected office, that kind of organizing. And uh, that's what we're arguing for. That's what we believe in. I mean, the, the reason that we are in the situation that we're in now with the reborn socialist movement and uh, some levels of uh, re- rekindled, re-sparked uh, working class militancy um comes from the fact that Bernie Sanders decided to participate in a presidential election, uh, and none of us would be having this conversation quite in the way that we are having it. I mean, there are a million times over the years where, you know, something would pop off, you know, in 2011, Occupy Wall Street would happen, uh, or the uh, occupation of the uh, Wisconsin Capitol that same year, or the Chicago Teachers Union strike. I mean, people were... Uh, in motion, people were responding to the fact that we have, you know, this record inequality and all kinds of misery throughout our country and throughout the world. Um, but it never quite cohered into something, uh, that could, uh, that that the the energy just kind of dissipated. Well, that's yeah. one of the really frustrating things about the Obama administration too, right? Exactly, Is that he yeah. could have very easily harnessed a lot of that energy and harnessed some of these social movements that were happening, like Occupy Wall Street or Black Lives Matter or the the Wisconsin protests, like what you were talking about. But he seems like he very deliberately allowed those movements to dissipate, just as he allowed his own social movement that got him elected president to dissipate, and didn't really rely on that to to deliver any change that way. And I think that's one of the frustrating things looking back is that that could have been harnessed by the, the people in the White House, but that was clearly not what uh, not what they were about, uh, which is why right. I think the Bernie campaign was unique and exciting because it was the idea that, uh, you know, not only are we going to create our own social movements and use these social movements to deliver real uh, profound change that can't just be done by, you know, voting for a politician and going home. Uh, and we're also, I imagine, going to like harness the the energy that's going to come out naturally from from people uh, protesting and 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 social movements that happen on their own. So that's one of the the frustrating things about the Obama administration, and one of the frustrating things about this moment uh, is that for now, that's not going to be really an opportunity in terms of like the the president of the United States. 
Yeah, I, you know, and one thing that I think if you spent a lot of time paying attention to the, this election and the last one, and if you have spent a lot of time learning about Bernie Sanders and his political trajectory, which both Mike and I have, and which we actually included a fair, fair bit of in the book, and if it's not something that you've like really studied, you know, I think we did a, gave a decent overview of his own trajectory. And one of the things that really stands out is that Bernie's dead serious, he's dead serious about this mass movement stuff. If Bernie Sanders had been, had become president, he would have tried. He would have actually tried to, as he put it, you know, raise hell in Mitch McConnell's own backyard in order to produce the kind of change that he would have wanted to see. And it wouldn't necessarily, it would not necessarily have been successful. We can't promise that, but we also know that transformational change has never happened in this country through any other means besides mass extra parliamentary pressure producing a scenario in which the state under capitalism, which is intrinsically arranged to protect the interests of the capitalist class, it, it, the, the mass movement pressure creates, uh, turns that sort of a dictum from on high from the capitalist class into an ultimatum. Now there are two sides saying, do, do what I want you to do or else there'll be consequences. And this is how change has worked, change that has benefited the working class historically. That is how it has been affected. And Bernie Sanders actually, actually believes that like he actually personally believes that. And so you would have seen him try. And that's more than we can say for anybody else, truly. Uh, one of the things I love about, you know, about, or one of the stories that I love about Bernie Sanders is when he quit the Liberty Union Party. It was this, it was this tiny party that he was a part of in Vermont in the early 70s and, or maybe mid 70s. And he quit it uh, and he wrote a letter and he said, that the reason he wanted to quit is because this party, sort of for the re some of the reasons that I mentioned earlier in the episode, was so sort of fixated on maintaining its own ballot line because it's very small and it's very difficult out there for a small party. And so it was very fixated on like picking a candidate and running a candidate in every election and didn't do any of the other stuff that say DSA does to like you know, labor, labor, labor organizing support and, you know, participation in, in various sort of protests and, you know, um, you know, housing justice and, uh, you know, like, nationalize the utilities, all this stuff. It didn't do any of that. It was just strictly focused on trying to find someone and run someone on its own party line in these elections. And when Bernie Sanders quit, he had been devoted. He had been, he had actually been the candidate multiple times of the Liberty Union party in their elections. And when he quit, he wrote that uh, the purpose of a party is to create a scenario in which working people take for themselves what they deserve and what has been taken from them. That's paraphrasing, but it's very lightly paraphrasing. That's more or less what he said. The, purp the purpose of a political party is to create that scenario for ordinary people to self-activate and to take what belongs to them. So we know that he believes that in his core. We know that he would have tried if he were president. And unfortunately, we're not going to have someone up there in the White House who is actually clearing obstacles for us to organize, which would have been would have been wonderful. I mean, it really would have produced, it would have produced effects that we can only sort of imagine. But that doesn't mean that we're going to stop. Well, maybe it won't even be necessary. Just, I saw know. Joe Biden today uh, with the making an overture to the left, talking about dropping that Medicare age to uh, sixty instead of sixty-five. Oh, so hell yeah. mission accomplished, pretty <laughs> I'm much. Pumped. I'm so fired up. <laughs> you can all just dust off your hands. Oh, well, you know, right. if it hadn't been it. for Bernie's campaign, that would have been going in the opposite direction. He would have raised the Medicare age to like he has seventy-five. Attempted. Well, right. with Social Security, way, he has attempted to raise raise <laughs> raise the age for older people's entitlements on multiple occasions. Yeah. But pointing that I out like is divisive, the, unfortunately. So you can't. 
Jeff Stein, Jeff Stein pointed out that this proposal is even to the right of some of what moderate yeah. senators have proposed, which is 55. So yeah. his overture to Bernie was being to the right of, of moderates. Great job, dude. You really yeah. got your finger on the pulse. I think well, those, all those young people are going to will be lining I'm up stoked, to, to vote for Diamond Joe now. Yeah, I mean, if, if you read uh, the book by our uh, colleague Bronco Martichich, uh, Yesterday's Man, which is this overview of Biden's career, you realize that that is literally what he does every time he's like, every time Joe Biden faces a fork in the road uh you know he could go this way or that way he always turns right especially when the <laughs> right wing is like you know like chirping at him he he's like always like listen jack i'm gonna show you and then he yeah. he like in some cases goes <laughs> to the right of what the right wing is proposing yeah so, well yeah. my favorite story on that front micah this is from bronco's research is that is that during the simpson bowles commission uh you know he was there to negotiate on behalf of the democrats and the obama administration and he and there were several points at which apparently the negotiations were proceeding and out of nowhere, he simply offered to cut Medicare and, or sorry, to cut Medicaid and social security. And other Democrats were like, what are you doing? That's not necessary right now. Like we, like we have the upper hand in this particular exchange and Joe Biden's like, what do you guys think? You guys want to, you guys want to cut some social security? So it's very, very eager. I think it's because in the night, in the 1980s and 90s, you would prove yourself. This is the the political culture that he grew up in. You would prove yourself a serious actor by being a deficit yeah. hawk and by and by and by sort of turning to others and be like, "Look, I'm not like those other Democrats. I'm a realist, and I understand that we gotta, as Joe Biden, we have to take on these sacred cows." That's a, that's a quote from him, and that's how you sort of in on the hill. It's like a cultural and social thing. That's how you sort of demonstrated that you were a mature uh, Democratic Party member, someone who was a realist and a pragmatist and he just can't he can't let it go yeah so he's stuck in the past those clips yeah like i I remember that meet the press clip where he talks about you touch those third rails in politics because that's you know how you get that's how you reach agreements and then when bernie like even just slightly pressed him on it in the debate uh and called him on it he let out that like almost like squeal He was like i did not and like had no real response to it like even like with bernie treating him like with kid gloves it's going to be brutal when Trump just hammers him for it uh, and runs to his left on to, or at least in rhetoric yeah. uh, on these types of issues. Yeah, and the media is not going to let him get away with just blatantly lying about his record and like not correcting right. him. They're going to forget well, about their aversion to that as soon as that uh, that becomes a Biden versus Trump thing. I mean, the media might, but I don't think Trump will. Like, yeah. Trump's going to be hammering him on everything. I mean, as you said, it's been kid. It was kid gloves up to this point. I'm really. I, I have a hard time watching a lot of these clips of him at this point. Like, I. It's. It's just like. When he's either blatantly lying or he's like having a hard time, like, uh, you know, and he, he clearly appears to be in some kind of like mental decline. Uh, th- that stuff is out there and nobody is only only people like us are talking about it on Twitter. But what do you think is going to happen when we get closer to November? I mean, yeah. that's, Trump is going to be oh, tweeting like Trump, every hour on the hour. About all these things. Yeah, it's he already started. He made a tweet the other day where he was just like uh, he was like uh, somebody pointed out that Joe Biden had said something about him on Twitter. And he was like, Joe Biden didn't write that. He has Democratic <laughs> operatives writing writing his tweets. And and he has and, and he, he doesn't even understand what's going on around him. No like, lies. Yeah, exactly. yeah, I know, right? <laughs> 
I don't know if you all saw, but the Trump campaign released an actual ad, like ex- explicitly from the Trump campaign, that ended with Joe Biden doesn't even re- remember his proposals. The whole <laughs> oh thing was God. trying to liken him to Bernie, and it's like, oh, they're the same. They're both extreme. Uh, they both believe the same things, and said so the only difference is Bernie remembers his proposals, and it's explicitly from the campaign. So it's like already starting, and it's only going to get worse. Well, from and they here. can cut ads yeah. too, just featuring like Cory Booker and Julian Castro and people that have like openly talked <laughs> yeah. about this in the media. People in the democratic party i mean the they the ads make themselves basically but you know well, oh, well. We, you know we're, we're getting into a territory where we will we'll have ample opportunities to watch this bloodbath transpire yes. in the months to come <laughs> yes. but um you know our book was uh we wrote it because this is the kind of the what is normal in american politics right like we're we're sort of now that bernie is out of the race we're back to uh the status quo where we've got like a foaming at the mouth rabid reactionary against like a you know polite uh uh like mild Aloof, oblivious, <laughs> yeah. bloodless democrat yeah. yeah and uh we you know that sucks i hate being in this position uh but we, what we saw in the Bernie campaign was a glimpse for the first time in our lifetimes, for the first time in, the, in this country in, in at least half a century, that politics actually doesn't have to be like this. Like, we can actually yeah. do politics differently in this country. And, like, we need to grab onto that that fact that has been presented to us and not let go of it and not let ourselves just, like, slip into the sort of depression oblivion that we're, that that uh, the, the presidential race is going to try to drag us into and remember that we can do electoral politics differently. We can do social movement organizing differently. Like there actually is a political alternative out there. We can say the word socialism and like not get laughed out of a room by people. Like all of these things are now open to us. And the worst thing that anybody could do right now, I mean, we, we should, you know, we should mourn and whatever, but the worst thing we could do is to just be like, screw all of this stuff. Like I'm not, you know, I'm done with, with, with politics now because we have seen that there is yeah, you know, it's it's like uh, uh, Dumb and Dumber is like, so you're saying there's a chance, like we've got a chance, and well, we can we can seize that chance. So uh, that's why we wrote the book because we think that we actually can seize that chance. We've seen examples, you know, not just through Bernie's two failed campaigns, but actually through you know local and state level victories that have happened through DSA and through other kinds of organizing. So like we can't let ourselves get too uh, dejected uh, by the moment, as dejecting of a moment as it is. We can't let ourselves slip too far into that kind of depression because there's actually a lot to be really pumped about right now in our politics. I think also our movement didn't actually, it wasn't actually, the movement for socialism and the sort of general left-wing movement wasn't actually strong enough to organically produce a phenomenon like Bernie Sanders. We got fucking lucky. We got lucky that Bernie Sanders, uh, joined a socialist organization on his college campus back in the last time that that was a thing that people did, which was over 50 years ago, and that he just managed to, through his own personal subjective qualities, uh, remain relatively consistent and also position himself such that it would actually make sense for him to run for president as a senator, right? Like it's just that we all, yeah. we got very, very lucky. And and so people have become very accustomed very quickly to the idea that we deserve the left sort of to des- deserves its own presidential candidate and that's good it's good that people now feel like their expectations have been radically and dramatically raised but it's also the case that like 
we're not necessarily going to have a Bernie Sanders running for president again in in the near future anytime. We might have, you know, we might have preferences with regards to presidential candidates, but it's not like from here on out we're going to have like our guy in the mix or our woman in the mix in every single, you know, presidential election. We have to rotate around. It's like musical chairs when you're a socialist. You have to sort of figure out where there are spikes in working class activity and direct your energies there. And in this case, it was presidential election. It may it might not be a presidential election again for a minute, but we've got, you know, right now, just the pandemic is has, and the disruptions in the economy that it has produced are causing a massive uptick in workplace organizing, for example, which is something that socialists should be on the front lines of. And also in between elections, you saw that not only were socialists, as we detail in the book, uh, pushing on the local and state level, uh, they were pushing, you know, socialist campaigns, but also, uh, you know, socialists were very involved in, in labor work and socialists were, were very much in the mix during a red for red teacher strike wave. So this is the kind of stuff that we need to keep doing. Yeah. And, um, you know, we were talking about, uh, Megan was just mentioning like Bernie, you know, happening to get politicized the last time that like socialism was a thing in the United States. And I, he has not been a member of a socialist organization since he was a member of the young people's socialist league at the university of Chicago in the sixties. Um, but I don't think it is a, a, a coincidence that he has uh, maintained the kind of basic rudiments of the socialist view of, of looking at the world, like understanding that rich people are not your friends and that working class people need to organize in order to win anything in, in society. Like all of that came from his basic political education as a socialist. He says that explicitly uh, in interviews that he's done, like the way that he came to see the world came from being uh, an educated uh, socialist education as a member of a, a socialist organization. So uh, to me, that's a pretty strong argument for why people, should uh, get involved in the socialist movement today. I mean, that's how we're gonna are we gonna create future Bernie Sanderses? Uh, is that in getting people involved uh, in socialist organizations, getting you know uh, the, that kind of basic socialist political education? He was also involved in the civil rights movement, so he's involved in the most important social movement of arguably U.S. history. Um, so that's also an important thing to do. Uh, but uh, that that is how we got this unique, you know, singular individual Bernie Sanders who managed to. To keep this torch burning uh, for literally decades in the wilderness up until 2016, where he could, re- you know, launch this credible uh, campaign for president and change everything. So uh, it's a that's a pretty strong argument to me for folks to get involved in uh, exactly that kind of the kind of movement that he got involved in 50 years ago that has you know been reborn today. While we still have you here, um, <clears throat> obviously there's been a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking about this. Uh, over the last couple of days and weeks, basically since Super Tuesday, uh, where the Bernie campaign went wrong. And um, a lot of people have different ideas about what that is. I think some of it is is silly. For example, like I've seen people kind of making, trying to make the case that, oh, Bernie just need to have like a gentler tone and make more overtures to the sort of uh, liberal wing of the party and, and try to be more inclusive to these people. But th- what they're describing is basically the exact approach that Elizabeth Warren took that went nowhere and failed to build a social movement. Um, so I, I think a lot of the people are getting this wrong. Uh, and But I was wondering if either of you two had any thoughts on this, if there was, if you had been in charge, if there was anything maybe you would have done differently, or where, if there's any place you did think that the campaign went wrong over the last year or so? I have been thinking about this pretty much nonstop for a while, and for the last few days, and I am feeling 
like they're as confused as anybody. Um, but I do think that a lot of people are sort of like wrong about particular things that they're saying very confidently. Yeah. So for example, uh, I've heard sort of some people talking about yeah, that particular thing, like Bernie should have been kinder, you know, the whole purpose of Bernie Sanders, like you're very right about that's what Elizabeth Warren did, it obviously didn't work. And also the whole purpose of the Bernie Sanders campaign was in many ways to uh, channel and uh, cohere people's sort of ambient inchoate anger and so it wouldn't have worked. It wouldn't. He wouldn't have become the um, hugely popular figure that he that he is if he had somehow if he had abandoned the that that sort of that sort of anger at the establishment, right? I mean, there was a populist mood in general in the United States. Donald Trump took took advantage of that populist mood in 2016. That pre-exists and predates Bernie Sanders. Uh, it's very important that he was uh, was tapping into that. So I think that's wrong. I, I think that uh, some people are saying that he should have gone harder against Joe Biden. And I don't, I'm not sure that that's true either because whenever he, I mean, so for example, like he went he went pretty hard against Joe Biden in the last debate. I, I've heard other people say that they don't think that he did, and I'm not sure what they were expecting from him. I mean, do you remember when he had Biden on the ropes and he asked him three times to say whether or not he had tried to cut Social Security and got him lying three times in a row? I mean, it was pretty aggressive. Yeah. The problem is that that, that details the problem. No matter how hard Bernie Sanders goes against Joe Biden or another opponent, it's mediated through the mainstream media because what Bernie did in that moment was he gave the media the opportunity to announce to everybody that Joe Biden had in fact lied and the media did not take advantage of that because they don't want Bernie Sanders yeah. to win. So so it's like, you know, Bernie can go as hard as he wants, but there's another layer. And I think that we all learned, we all learned a little something about the mainstream yes. media in 2020. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, and I think that's what most people are coming away from this with. And so some people, again, they're saying, well, Bernie should have like cozied up to the media. It's not, you can't cozy up to the media. It's, it's, these are, these are multi, these are massive corporations. Media, media companies are in fact companies and Bernie Sanders would like to limit the ability of companies to run the entire world. And the companies very much know that. And, and furthermore, me, media companies, that's, that's the sort of on the CEO level, what they're thinking. That's why there's so much antipathy to Bernie Sanders on that level. And then down on the level of reporters, reporters want to have fat Rolodexes full of contacts who are in charge of stuff. And the people who are currently in charge of stuff are not people that they want to alienate. And so they want to help those people that they're currently in touch with stay in charge of stuff for their own career purposes. So there's a lot of different ways in which the media is arranged against our project. And the idea that Bernie should have personally gone harder against Joe Biden, it runs into a wall when you start to think about how that would have played in the media, how the media would have played it, whether they would have ignored it, whether they would have actually turned it into a, a potential negative. Bernie Sanders goes on the attack, you know, the double standards held against him and so on. So I'm, I'm honestly kind of at a loss myself. He, I don't think that it's a field operation problem. Bernie Sanders had, if not if not the best field operation in American elect, uh, presidential uh, history, then tied with Barack Obama's in 2018. You know, like it was phenomenal. And Joe Biden won in places where he didn't even campaign. So that's not the issue. Um, sometimes, you know, sometimes you just, it's a test. Sometimes yeah. it's just a test of w the balance of class forces. And sometimes your forces are not strong enough to beat the other forces. And you learn that the hard way. So um, I don't want to let us all off the hook from introspection, but we do have to accommodate for a degree of macro level processes as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that there are things that 
you know, specific tactical things or whatever that you could point to the wrong. I actually disagree with Megan. I think he could have gone way harder against Biden in that debate and he could have gone harder at Biden throughout. But I mean, I think that's a pretty minor issue. I think that, that Megan is right about just like Bernie was essentially trying to create these kind of left wing for- forces from scratch. And surprise, surprise, he wasn't able to do so in this, in the span of five years. But I also think that, uh, it's kind of, I'm trying to think about this, you know, I don't want this to be a cop out to this the answer to this question. But like, if we think about this election, not in terms of like, did we win or lose right now? But if we think about it a year from now, five years from now, 20 years from now, what what is it going to look like? And there's obviously no way of knowing. But I think about uh, Barry Goldwater's 1964 run for president, in which he lost very badly. And Barry God- Goldwater was this really reactionary uh, right-wing Republican, and he lost, and people were convinced that that was like the end of the Republican Party. Uh, and of course, uh, we know now that, that actually was not true. That his his failed campaign for president was actually a kind of launching pad for the whole project that became like Richard Nixon and especially you know Ronald Reagan. And that campaign that that project has dominated American politics for decades at this point. So no one would look back on Barry Goldwater and say, "Oh, that guy was a failure." because he lost the campaign. No, he set in motion forces that were uh, much larger than any individual campaign and really helped reorient American politics uh, much to the negative. He made life really miserable for millions and millions of Americans and, and you know, literally billions of people around the globe. Um, but I, my hope is that uh, Bernie's campaign will be seen as a kind of polar opposite, like a Barry Goldwater, but for good things <laughs> in yes. the world. Um, and, you know, it's too soon to say that that, that is definitely going to be the case. Uh, but I don't think it is absurd to suggest uh, that it might be, in which case, when we're all talking about this in five or 20 years from now, uh, we'll be like, wow, Bernie totally transformed american politics uh, can you imagine what politics would have looked like if bernie sanders had not run the two campaigns that he did it would have been very bleak uh so that's my yeah. that's my i guess my positive spin my my maybe it's just me trying to make myself feel better but i yeah. i think that that is a real possibility that we that we have to grapple with that like th- this could be a shifting of tectonic plates it's not just a win or loss in an election it's like a a, a much larger shift in uh in in how our politics are going to be conducted in the in the near term medium term and long term yeah i think one thing talking about going hard at biden one thing that sticks out to me is that zephyr Teachout article and the whole controversy that happened with that within within sirota yes blasting that out and then bernie kind of walking it back talking about biden being corrupt uh and then bernie kind of walking that back and in in a little bit throwing teach out and sirota under the bus for it uh, that was something that I felt like he should have leaned into more. But again, this is just, it's easy for me to say this, but I don't know that that would have moved the needle or or changed the result in any way. I mean, I guess if yeah. I was doing things, if I was behind the scenes of that campaign, maybe I would have like uh, gone in that direction. But I don't know if that's the answer or what what that would have changed. Ultimately. I mean, I think... I think it's an inter- it's a, it's an interesting dynamic to comment on, and it's a real one. But I don't think that it necessarily is the answer to the question of why Bernie Sanders lost. Yeah. So those are two different things. Yeah. Like, like yes, I agree, and I think that we could talk for a long time about the Bernie Sanders had diff- cam- campaign was a unique coalition of different forces with different ideas about how to respond to mass outrage. 
okay? And we all watched it happen and it was sometimes all over the place. And there were just obviously different types of people involved in this campaign with different attitudes about this. And, you know, sometimes some of those forces won, uh, I mean, sorry, the forces who, who were saying, you know, please, you know, be polite and tamp down on the controversy. Sometimes they won, for example, uh, the teach out thing. Um, and sometimes they lost, like sometimes, you know, with the Joe Rogan thing, there was no, there was no apology, there was no traction. It was, it was, so it was kind of all over, there was not like a one approach to dealing with controversy. Um, and it's very interesting that, um, that there were different tensions there. And I think that they're connected probably to different political tendencies, but I don't think that any of the little, um, the little occurrences of that type actually ultimately made that much of a difference. Cause I think that the difference was made on the ground among people who decided who they were going to vote for in like 48, 48 hours before they went to the polls yeah. based on what they were seeing on cable news, which usually was not, usually it was not related to one of these little flare-ups. Well, that's the, that's exactly um, what I wanted to ask about next, um, is, is that I, I read that I think an article, kind of a postmortem, I can't remember, I think it was in Politico about the campaign. And one of the big things that they pointed to was, oh, after Nevada, when, you know, the, all suddenly Sanders has won the first couple of primaries, the third one really convincingly, he looks like he has momentum and they were kind of counting on the media to tell that story of like reflect that accurately to people. Uh, and instead that entire like week long news cycle was about Castro and Bernie loves Castro and uh, Bernie defends dictators and stuff. And like, that's, that's kind of a frustrating thing because I don't know who's like, that's not whose fault is that? I mean, Bernie, I mean, he was just being honest and honestly answering a question. And the media, is the, the, they're the people that chose to turn that into a week-long news cycle instead of talking about the kind of historic coalition that was being cobbled together. So you know what I mean? It's kind of like yeah. they're framing it as like oh, some kind of mistake that Bernie made. But I don't know like if Bernie had said, no, no, actually, I changed my mind and, and Castro was bad and everything about Cuba was bad. Would they have said, oh, okay, and just moved on? No, it's like they were looking for something that they could talk about. <laughs> Anything other than this guy is the one that has the momentum. And he's putting together this amazing coalition, and he's kind of on the path to win the nomination. Uh, that's just something that's completely out of his hands. Yeah, I mean, I I think if Bernie had backed away from his statements on uh, Cuba, which, by the way, are criticized by the left all of the time, <laughs> like, you know, people people think that Bernie is like not defending Cuba uh, enough. Uh, yeah. uh, but, it, you know, it's funny that that was the that was the way that the uh, I mean, it's to be expected, of course, that the mainstream media would try to paint him that way. Uh, but. Um, I think that if he were to start like backing away from things that he'd said about Cuba or about anything else, that would have actually hurt him because his whole proposition is like, I'm actually honest. I actually tell people what I believe. So I don't think that the Cuba thing hurt him, but I do think that what you're saying about like the post Nevada narrative, I mean, if there were any justice in this world, there would have been like dozens of feature reported feature articles yeah. about the amazing feats that were accomplished by the Bernie Sanders campaign, yeah. including by one Megan Day Historic and others who were shit. on the ground. I mean, like, I'm not were... trying to toot my own horn. I was a mere, <laughs> I was a mere soldier, but my God, like, you know, these are the, this is the stuff of movies. I was in fucking tears. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. If, 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 if there were justice, there would not just be, you know, reported features. There would be a, uh, you know, if we weren't in the middle of a pandemic, there would be a like Hollywood blockbuster motion picture. I don't know who would be playing Megan, but like there, there would be Someone like really attractive. There would be like a socialist oceans 11 happening you know, in production right now to talk about what happened in Nevada. I mean, and like, again, 
you know, what happened in Nevada was the same thing that happened in Iowa. All over the country, there were these stories that were of, you know, they were in direct contravention of the media narrative that had come about the Bernie Sanders campaign the entire time, which is that it's this like, you know, the Bernie Bro narrative. And instead, you had like Ethiopian cab drivers and black and Latino uh, casino and hotel workers and all of yeah. them. You saw the pictures from Nevada, from from the strip caucuses. I mean, just organizing in, went into that. Uh, that, it was, that, that happened yeah. because the Bernie Sanders campaign organized. Yeah. Yeah, and it it just really, but to to really report that thing out uh, to the the extent that it deserved would have shown that everything that had been said about Bernie and his coalition up to that point was a lie. Uh, so yeah, or that he's not electable. I mean, if he's if he, yeah, obviously exactly. he is electable if he's winning these primaries uh, convincingly like that. I don't, I don't know what my point in going on that rant was, except <laughs> to say that there needs to be the Socialist Oceans Eleven about the Bernie <laughs> campaign in Nevada because it was incredible there stuff. Be, but I, but also, I mean, I think yeah, I mean, I called I called Mike and I remember Mike. I called you on the way way back. I was driving back. I was at a gas station. I was like yelling at you in the in the like parking lot of a gas station about <laughs> like just this incredible experience that I'd had. I'm just full of I was full of I was full of joy and hope and pathos and then you turn on the television and it's just like does bernie sanders love dictators do you yeah. think he would be a dictator you know like it's, his, it's his supporters but, are basically know, brown shirts uh you know that was literally Ooh, the, yeah it was, was the chris the... matthews thing the day the day of the caucuses yeah. the day of the nevada caucuses i was in a parking lot with Bernie staffers after having had won those strip caucuses and just overwhelmingly won the state and literally a rainbow broke out and it was like all of us were like full of emotion that's the closing scene that's the closing (laughs) scene of the movie and then somebody pulls out their phone and they're like Chris Matthews just said that this is like when France fell to the Nazis and it was, you know, the media. Yeah. To the, I guess the moral of the story is that I don't think that anybody really knows what we're supposed to be doing to circumvent the media. Yeah. I mean, that's that. I think if there, anyone wants to take away a lesson of what went wrong in this campaign, the media to me is the big, the, the big culprit. And it's not anything specifically that the Sanders campaign did. You can have arguments about maybe, you know, they should have done this or this, but Ultimately, when you have this multi-billion dollar institution just completely aligned in making sure that you don't have any momentum, that they're completely not covering your their movement or your supporters in the way that in a way that reflects reality. I mean, there's not there's not really any way around that. And as we saw, many, many Democratic voters took their cues from that. And even though like uh, I think that was the, that was the mistake that I think I made and I think possibly the campaign made also is thinking that, OK, after Nevada, he's clearly got this momentum in any other presidential campaign, that's the person that the media is going to say, okay, well, this is the guy, obviously everyone's coalescing around this guy. And then that's kind of, uh, that's, you can kind of just coast on that to the, to the convention, but because obviously they're not, that narrative was not being applied, uh, because purposely that seems like a really huge obstacle. And like that Megan said, I'm not really sure what the solution to that is, but that's something that's completely out of the Bernie campaign's hands and complete. That's something that's completely independent of of any decision that was made in from a campaigning or organizing standpoint. Yeah, all that's true, but the way that you phrase it, I mean, really shows that what is incredible 
uh, is not that Bernie Sanders lost, given all of the forces that were arrayed against him, but that despite all of that, the media juggernaut and everything else, he still managed to break through uh, in a number of places uh, at a time when there's like no existing, uh, the the existing left and labor infrastructure and the progressive infrastructure is extremely weak. He still managed to uh, break through in all of that, uh, you know, in in places like Nevada and and, in Iowa and New Hampshire. So, um, I mean, that is a, a, t- a takeaway that people should have is that like, you know, when you storm the castle, like it's, it's, it's pretty tough to get inside, but like you, you can, <laughs> you can, uh, actually succeed in getting inside sometimes, at least, uh, at least part of the way we got, we got past the moat. That's pretty incredible. I think, you know, I mean, hopefully that we don't have the answers to, for example, how to circumvent the media, but we, I, I hope that the book actually does contain useful guideposts for people in terms of what we should do next. Given that none of us actually have control over the media anyway, I mean, obviously that that's that is the central problem with the media, right? So in terms of being able to do what we can and have control, uh, what we do have control over, I mean, I hope that um, people will take the book seriously, and I hope that people will see that they they actually do have the ability to um, be behave as political actors in uh, electoral politics and in the social movements, and particularly the labor movement. And uh, yeah, hopefully, hopefully the book makes you feel a little bit better because we wrote it before the outcome became clear and. I think that was actually a useful exercise because it, it kind of forced us to boil it down to what we think are like the essentials in terms of how socialists should behave in any given situation because we had no idea what the situation was going to be. I hope people read it. So Micah, Megan, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, your book, Bigger Than Bernie, How We Go From the Sanders Campaign to Democratic Socialism is available uh, what tw- the 21st. Uh, you could buy that at the Jacobin's uh, website. You could buy that from Verso Books directly. Um, other than this, buying the book, uh, you know, reading it, enjoying it, applying it to their lives, where can people find your work elsewhere? Well, Megan is a staff writer for Jacobin, so she's got multiple articles every week uh, in Jacobin. And uh, you can go to jacobinmag.com and you, you will not know it, but my fingerprints will be on many things that you will read there. <laughs> so check us out at the Jacobin website. So Megan is saying the book is available now. My my apologies. The site of the yeah, book twenty for the twenty first. We moved it up. Yeah, so, I mean we moved it up because everybody's at home, right? And the book's done, yeah. and you know the Bernie <laughs> Sanders campaign has has drawn to a close. So get your hands on it; it's available. Nice. Yeah, you got to meet people where they're at. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, great. Thanks again for coming on. I, I'm I'm kind of disappointed because like we I know uh, Micah mentioned that you two are going to be in Montreal for the Great Transition Conference in May. I was hoping to maybe hang out while you were here. It doesn't look like that's probably gonna be happening yeah. now unfortunately no, it's not gonna be happening i'm so sad i love montreal yeah when i told lived you, in montreal yeah i lived there for a year and i was really uh looking forward to uh going to the the big park there and like you know having a nice little picnic spread and yes you know drink a little smoke a little weed just hang out Classic. And, uh, now yeah not, not happening well when everything goes back to I normal um, like you'll have to look me up if you're if you pass through town again but thanks again for coming on the on the show Absolutely. you two it was really great to, to speak with you yeah, yeah, thanks, thanks a lot, you. guys. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to The Insurgents. Please remember to subscribe over at theinsurgents.substack.com. Find the podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. And please remember to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It's very helpful and we appreciate it a lot. But please, again... 
don't mention Ken Klippenstein in the review. He is banned from the show. It's a lifetime ban, so please do not mention him in the review. And we'll be back later this week with more of the content that you know and love. Goodbye. Goodbye.